It's been a long-standing custom at the college for one of the tutors to give the opening lecture on liberal education. The speaker is often recommended by the dean, so I feel a bit awkward in picking myself <laughs> to have the opportunity to give the inaugural lecture at, at Thomas Aquinas College in New England. Um, I did run by the other tutors, and they were perfectly willing to let me do this. <laughs> They've all been very busy. It was also uh, once a custom that when the tutor of Thomas Aquinas College gives a lecture, he gets no formal introduction. This is because our tutors are either well known to the students or they will be. Uh, this will be especially true here on campus. So I'm kind of, at least for a short period of time, like to follow that custom of not having a, a lecturing tutor have an informal introduction. So nobody's introducing me. Um, <clears throat> so the topic I've chosen for this lecture is how faith illumines reason. I'm by no means an expert on this topic. Nothing I say tonight will be original. Much of what I say I learned from my own tutors, the founders of Thomas Aquinas College. Dr. MacArthur used to give periodically a lecture on intellectual custom. And he did this to keep students fired up about the program and also just remind them about what our goal was, what our end was in the program. So he would give this talk almost every year. And the place was always packed. And I wish I could speak as well as he did. Um, since he passed away, that, a version of that talk is actually published in the 2015 edition of the Aquinas Review. Another article that's in that same edition is an article by Dr. Neumeier, the founding dean of Thomas Aquinas College on faith-seeking understanding. And Mark Berkowitz, another founder, was one of the principal authors of our founding document, a proposal for the fulfillment of a Catholic liberal education, which we call Blue Book for short. Um, I strongly recommend recommend reading these papers when you have the time. All of these tutors had a profound influence on my life and I've learned much from them on this very topic. Much of what I say tonight is drawn from them. Of course, the founders never pointed to themselves as being the teachers. They would point to our Lord, to the church, and to St. Thomas. As you will see, I've taken much from St. Thomas as well from the Catechism of the Church and from the writings of Pope John Paul II. I also recollect that when Dr. MacArthur gave his talk on intellectual custom, he acknowledged that much of what he said he learned from one of his professors at Laval University, Monsignor Dion, and he would always ask us to remember him and his, our prayers. So I ask the same for our founders, both for those who are, have passed away and those who are still with us. So it should be fairly clear that the topic is an appropriate one for an opening lecture. The Blue Book states, and I quote, the essential purpose of Catholic college is to educate under the light of faith. Further on it says, and this is number one in your handout, the Catholic college has never really understood itself, has never, that is, thought out the exigencies of a liberal education which is undertaken into the subordination of the teaching church and which has as its aim an intellectual perfection which is possible and proper to the Catholic alone. Such an education demands that all the parts of the curriculum not ordered to technical concerns should be conducted with a view to understanding the Catholic faith and that the faith itself should be the light under which the curriculum is conducted. I think it's clear that here we're talking about American Catholic colleges, not the original universities that started in the Middle Ages because they really did start as a place to study theology. I remember Dr. MacArthur putting it another way um, he says a program 
of study is formally Catholic, when all the parts of the curriculum are integrated in order to the study of theology as the highest wisdom. This is in contrast to a college or university where there are numerous majors and minors with philosophy and theology tacked on uh, to, as core curricular requirements or as electives. In this case, the courses are not ordered to theology and may even contradict theology. The other disciplines are not serving as handmaids to theology. At best, theology is just another required course, leaving one to think that of it as less important than the courses in one's major. There's another point in the text that I quoted above that I want to um, show more in this lecture. And that's the statement where it says, the aim of Catholic liberal education is a perfection of the intellect which is proper and possible to Catholic alone. It's this that justifies the title of my lecture. Granted then that faith is essential to Catholic liberal education, I plan to divide this talk into two main parts. In the first part, I will talk about faith, and in the second, I will talk about the relationship between faith and reason. And I'm going to divide the first part into two parts. Uh, the first will be on natural faith, and the second on the theological virtue of faith. So let's talk about natural faith. How do we distinguish what is held by faith from what is held in doubt, or by opinion, or by knowledge? It should be clear that things held with doubt and those with, held with knowledge are on opposite ends of the spectrum. We have the least certitude or conviction about the things we doubt, and we have the most certitude and conviction about the things that we actually know. So where do opinion and faith fall in the lineup? Most would grant that we hold more firmly the things we believe to be true than the things that we opine to be true. So if that's correct, the order would be doubt, opinion, faith, and knowledge, going from the least certain to the more certain. St. Thomas gives an account of this uh, in his treatise on truth, De Veritate, where he says that the human intellect is in potency to all intelligible forms and is not, to begin with, more determined one way rather than another. And there are two ways the intellect can determ be determined. It will be moved either by an object, which is the knowable thing, or by the will. When moved by an object, the intellect is in a state of doubt when it's not more disposed to accept one side of a contradiction than the other. And just, just, um, just for the freshmen here, you haven't gotten to the De Interpretazione yet, but you'll learn that with contradictory propositions, what's characteristic of them is that one is true and the other is false. They can't both be true or both be false. So an example would be that all triangles have angles equal to two right angles. The contradictory proposition would be some triangles do not. One of those has got to be true, the other's got to be false. Um, so one's in a state of doubt um, if you're not more inclined to one side of a contradiction than you are to another. If, one, if the intellect is moved by an object and it is inclined more to one side of a contradiction, but fears the other side might be true, then one has opinion. So if I hold that man-made global warming is a fact, but I fear that it's not, the global warming's not man-made, then I have an opinion that there's man-made global warming. At least I should put it this way, if I hold it, 
that, that uh, there is man-made global warming, but I fear that there's not, then I just have the opinion. On the other hand, if the intellect is moved by an object and it's determined one side of a contradiction without any fear of the other side being true, there will be understanding when the mind sees the evidence immediately or there'll be science if it's based on an argument from immediately known things. Notice that the understand, understanding and science are both based on evidence the intellect has from the thing itself. It's because of this evidence that it does not fear the contradictory is true. All of the above have in common the, the fact that the intellect is being moved in some way by the object itself. The intellect can also be moved by the will. In such cases, the intellect holds onto something not because it sees it, but rather because it's good, it seems good to hold it. Here the will moves the intellect to sent to one side of a contradiction rather than the other because of something that is sufficient to move the will but not sufficient to move the intellect. If your geometry teacher tells you that in all right triangles the square on the hypotenuse is equal to the sum of the square on the sides and you believe it because you think your geometry teacher knows that or because you think um, you can, there'll be some good that comes out of it then you're holding that by faith. You don't really know it. As St. Thomas puts it, you believe what another says because it seems fitting or useful to do so. So I guess if you're going to get somewhere in geometry, you've got to believe your geometry teacher. Um, if you don't see the demonstration, you don't see the argument. <clears throat> so it's good to reflect on the role of faith in human learning. We're born into the world knowing nothing. Our first ex experience is wholly sensory. But it's clear that when a child begins, using, uh, begins to speak, it is, begins to use its intellect. The meaning of words comes from being taught by parents. When a mother says I and po points to her I, the child believes that this is the name for that organ. The child naturally trusts its mother, thinks the mother truly knows these things, and that the child is being taught these things for its own good. So those are the reasons for the ascent. Think of students or subjects studied in school, grammar, history, geography, math, science. All of these are learned and held primarily by faith. If we assent to what we hear in the news on the radio or television, we're assenting for the most part by faith. Moreover, it's worth noting that even in the so-called natural sciences themselves, given the way they're taught, most of the information is held by faith rather than the by the intellect being moved by the objects themselves. No one has the time or the ability to see for himself all the things he's being taught in the classroom. It's certainly more efficient to teach this way, but it doesn't result in knowers in the strict sense of the word. So it's good and natural to learn by faith. But we are putting a lot of trust in people when we learn this way. As we go on in school and advance in our education, we're putting trust in people we don't know or, or who don't know us and who don't care for us, or at least might not care for us, as much as our parents do anyway. At some point, we may want to ask ourselves why or whether we trust them. Nevertheless, as one gains more experience, things known by first by faith can then become known through the things themselves. One then tr is truly a knower. It's also worth noting that faith in this sense is not an intellectual virtue. That is, it's not a perfection of the intellect. Rather, it can be a stepping stone to true knowledge. 
The intellect is not determined by the object itself and therefore is not conformed or perfected by that object. It does not have the evidence for what it believes and the intellect does not possess the certitude of knowledge. There's also a danger when a will is moving intellect to assent because of some apprehended good. It may be difficult to change one's mind even when faced with the object itself. The good apprehended by the will might impede a careful look at the object or overrule the apprehension of the object by the intellect. This problem manifests itself particularly in moral and political matters. For example, the economic good of slave labor might overrule the judgment that all men are created equal. The perceived good of being free from the burden of parenthood might impede knowing that the developing embryo is a human being. Or granting that it is a human being, overrule the judgment that it's unjust to take an innocent human life. This type of faith that we've described thus far does not, strictly speaking, illumine reason. Rather, it may serve as a means of moving from not knowing to knowing by the natural power of our intellect. By believing something to be true, we may seek out the object itself and give it careful examination. The object will then be what determines our intellect and we will know the truth. However, there's another kind of faith we alluded to in our introduction that has to do with divinely revealed things. It is included among the theological virtues along with hope and charity. So now I want to talk about the theological virtue of faith. Let me say a few words about the theological virtues in general. In the Summa, St. Thomas argues for the necessity of the theological virtues in the following way. Man is directed to happiness through being perfected by virtue. However, man's happiness is twofold. One is proportionate to human nature, a happiness which man can obtain by means of natural principles. The other is a happiness surpassing man's nature in which can be obtained by the power of God alone, by a kind of participation of the Godhead about which it is written, from this is 2 Peter 1.4, that by Christ we are made partakers of divine nature. Because this kind of happiness surpasses the capacity of human nature, the natural virtues are insufficient to achieve it. So I have a quote here, number two. Hence, it is necessary for man to receive from God some additional principles whereby he may be directed to supernatural happiness, even as he's directed to his co-natural end by means of natural principles. These virtues are called theological, first because their object is God insofar as they rightly direct us to him, second because they are infused in us by God alone, and third these virtues are not made known to us except by divine revelation. So that justifies the language of calling them theological virtues. Notice that God is not the direct object of theological virtue, but is an object that is seen indirectly. Rather, he's an object in the sense that he's the end to which we are directed. He's the object of our desire. We see him through a glass darkly. The second point is that unlike the natural virtues which would be acquired by practice and discipline, the theological virtues have to be infused by God. They are held in us as a result of grace, a free gift from God. The third point is that we believe hope and what we believe hope and love is made known to us by divine revelation. Faith comes from hearing. 
The knowledge of the creed, for example, is not infused in us at baptism. We have to hear it. At this point, we can begin to see that faith illumines reason in the sense that it gives us knowledge of things that can only be known by divine revelation. These things are above the power of natural reason to know. In the second part of the second part of the Summa, St. Thomas goes on in more detail about the theological virtues. So what I quoted earlier in quote number two is from the first part of the Summa. First part of the second part, excuse me. So in the second part is where he actually, oh, the second part, this is confusing. Um, he actually talks about the virtues and corresponding vices um, in more detail. In the, and the first question of that part of the Summa is on faith. And he argues that the object of faith is first truth, which I think is very striking. See, remember above when he was treating of the theological virtues, he said that God is the object of the theological virtues. St. Thomas is now giving a more formal account of the object of faith. He says in the body of the article that the object of every cognitive habit includes two things. First, that which is known materially, that is the object itself, or uh, you might say the subject matter. And the second is that whereby it is known, which is the formal aspect of the body, of the object, excuse me. He gives an argument from, or example from geometry. He says the conclusions of geometry are what are materially known by the science. As the example above, that the interior angles are equal, of a triangle equal to two right angles. That would be what is known materially in geometry. But the demonstration by which it's known, or the means, of, um, is the formal way, uh, um, aspect of, of knowing the object. It's by means of demonstration. Let me give another example from sense. Um, horse, car, house, and tree are all objects of sight. They're all objects of sight by being colored. Hence, being colored is the formal aspect by which they're known. Therefore, many vastly different things are objects of sight materially. You wouldn't even put them in the same class of things. But they all uh, have something formal in common, and that is being colored. So that's the formality by which they're known. So how does this distinction help us understand the object of faith? It's quote number three. St. Thomas says, if we consider in faith the formal aspect of the object, it's nothing else than the first truth. So he's saying first truth is the formal aspect. For the faith of which we are speaking does not assent to anything except because it's revealed by God. Hence the means on which faith is based is divine truth. This argument needs some unpacking. How do we move from the formality of being revealed by God to divine truth and first truth? In the body of the article, St. Thomas goes on to say that if we consider the object of faith materially, many things other than God can be the, considered the object of faith, but only insofar as these other things bear some relation to God. For example, how man is being helped by God to achieve beatitude. In this way, all other truths of the faith are considered only insofar as it related the truth about God. It follows that the truth about God is not only divine truth, but the first truth. So St. Thomas seems to be saying in the body of the article that uh, he seems to be equating divine truth with first truth because it's the truth by which other truths are known. 
To pursue this question more deeply, we need to ask the question Pontius Pilate asked our Lord. What is truth? Um, this is kind of difficult, but I thought it might be worth hearing because this is part of the summa we don't get to. Um, but I think it's something we're all interested in. What is truth? St. Thomas did this in question 16 in the first part of the Summa, so he's already dealt with that before he gets the discussion about faith. In the first article of this question, he asks whether truth resides in the intellect only. To answer this question, he first distinguishes between the tendencies of appetite, such as the will, and those of the intellect. This helps to be a very fruitful distinction. Um, he says that knowledge is according as the thing known is in the knower, while the appetite is according as the thing desire, desiring tends toward the thing desiring. So we think we know something when somehow the thing out there has come to be in our mind. So it's according as the thing known is in the intellect, whereas desire seems to go out to the thing desired. I left my heart in San Francisco. Um, your, your, your heart's going out to something else. So it seems like the, the motion of the intellect and the will are in opposite directions. So we say the term of desire, which is the good, is in the object desired, whereas the term of the intellect, the true, is in the intellect itself. St. Thomas goes on to make a further comparison between appetite and intellect. He says, the good existing in things exists in things insofar as they're related to appetite. In other words, they're called good because they are desirable. So the aspect of good passes from the object to the appetite. So we say the will is good when it's desiring an object that's good. So um, it gets its, it's being called good because of the object it desires. So it's passing from the, ob the goods passing, the notion of goods passing from the good object to the intellect, or excuse me, the will. On the other hand, in truth, um, when we talk about truth, it's in the intellect insofar as it conforms to the object understood. Hence, the attribute of true passes from the intellect to the object. Therefore, the object is called true insofar as it has some relation to intellect. And there can be two different relationships between an object and an intellect. One can be when there's the maker of the object makes that thing. Then there's an essential relationship. So if an architect builds a house, there's, a, there's an essential relationship between the architect and that thing. But if I just happen to walk by and see the house and I know the house and it's not my house, I didn't build it, um, there's, there's not an, an essential relationship. And that makes a difference because when we make something, we say the object's true when it conforms to our notion of that thing that we had when we were gonna make it. And so we can kind of compare the thing to what's in the intellect and say that it's measuring up to what's in the intellect. And I think we have the experience of calling things true in that respect. You know, you, you make something, you say, well, this is true. It fits with what I intended. Um, if this is right, then truth belongs primarily to the intellect and secondarily to things. Um, <clears throat> so 
So artificial things are called true, so the things are called true, and so far as they conform to the, the one who made them. And natural things are called true in so far as they conform to the mind of the creator. Hence, when we consider the various, St. Thomas, he considers the various definitions of truth in this article, and he's got some from St. Augustine, he's got lots of different definitions. And some of them are focusing on truth in the primary sense of being an intellect, others are focusing on the truth that's in things. St. Thomas decides on this definition, number four. The adequation, or I say conformity of, a th of thing and intellect. So if you put it that way, it's not favoring one, uh, it's not favoring whether the truth is found in the intellect or in things. It's putting it in such a way that it could, be, it could go either way. So it's a, it's a very nice way of putting it. And it, um, it, so it brings together both ways of trying to define truth. But I think when we first think about defining truth, we'd say, well, it's the conformity of mind to reality. Because we first think about what's true, you're thinking about propositions being true, statements that you make. Those are products of the mind. Um, okay. Now, St. Thomas, in um, the next article in question 16, makes an important distinction that I think is worth hearing. He distinguishes between having the truth and knowing the truth. It's one thing to have a likeness of the thing known in the intellect. It's another thing to know that there's conformity between what's in the intellect and the thing. And he's saying that knowing that conformity is knowing the truth. So he denies that the senses can um, know the truth. He says the senses don't have that capacity. So the senses can have the truth. So what my eye perceives is true. But he says the sense can't know the truth because a sense can't know its own conformity uh, to the thing. Whereas a mind is able to reflect on that and actually see the conformity. So I think that's worth knowing. And it seems to me that um, knowing the truth adds to certitude. Because it's going a step beyond just knowing something. But actually to know that there's conformity is taking it a step further. <clears throat> now here's the hard part. In Article 5, St. Thomas argues that God is truth. And he quotes um, John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So St. Thomas takes that literally. It's like we say God is love. We say a lot of things like that. Um, St. Thomas gives us an argument for saying God is truth. And this is number five. I thought I better let you see this. <laughs> this, is, um, this is not easy. It says, truth is found in the intellect according as it apprehends a thing as it is, and it's in things according as they have being conformable to an intellect. So that's what we just went through, talking about the two different ways that you can think about where truth is. This is to the greatest degree found in God. For his being is not only conformed to his intellect, but it is the very act of his intellect. And his act of understanding is the measure and cause of every other being and every other intellect. And he himself is his own existence and act of understanding. Whence it follows not only that truth is in him, but that he is truth itself and the sovereign and first truth. 
So in other words, if we consider the conformity between God's existence as an object and his existence as apprehended by him as a knower, there's not only conformity between the two, there's complete identity. Because of the divine simplicity, all of God's operations are the same as his essence and his existence. Time does not permit me to prove this point to you. You're, you're going to have to believe me. Um, you will see the argument for this junior year. But we do have a hint of this in scripture. When Moses asks God at the burning bush what his name is, he says, I am. Or I am who am. And St. Thomas understands that to mean that he's saying that I am on my own existence. Um, so there's a hint of it in scripture. <clears throat> so he is truth because the conformity between his intellect and object is so complete there's no distinction. Or you might say that he is that most perfect conformity. Since there can be no conformity prior to this conformity, we can call him first truth. Moreover, he is first truth because all other truths depend on his truth. God's understanding is the cause of every other being and every other intellect. So he's the cause of the truth of all beings, whether the truth is residing in the intellect or in things. This discussion gives us a more complete notion of what it means to say that the object of faith is first truth. As we've said above, the object is not known face to face which leaves us dissatisfied and yearning for more. But it's worth noting, however, that the object of faith is the cause of all other truths. So let's turn now to um, a definition of faith. The Catechism of the Church defines faith in terms of an activity. This is number six on your handout. <clears throat> faith is man's response to God, reveals himself and gives himself to man at the same time bringing man a supernatural, a superabundant light as he searches for the ultimate meanings in life. So the response of a man is an activity. He's responding to God and he sees God as the source of revelation and he sees the good that gives ultimate meaning to life. The first two have to do with intellect, the last with the will. So we have a definition of faith in terms of its activity which is just to believe. But how do we define faith that's the principle of this activity? As you freshmen have learned from the Mino, it's difficult to define things well. In the Mino, Socrates asks for a definition of virtue. Mino takes several makes several unsuccessful attempts, which leaves you wondering how to define it. But we're very fortunate in this case that God not only gives us the gift of faith, He's revealed its definition. Uh, in the epistle to Hebrews, St. Paul defines faith, and I, this is number seven, the substance of things to be hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. So I have the Latin there for you, um, just so you can see that that's a pretty literal translation of the Latin. And um, just the Greek too, the Greek for substance is hypostasis, which can mean the same thing as the word substance. So it's very literal translation. It seems like a strange definition, substance of things to be hoped for. Um, so right away, you can see this def definition differs significantly from the catechism definition. Substance and evidence are not activities. 
So how do we understand this statement? St. Thomas begins his discussion by saying that some have denied that this is a definition. He says, however, and I quote, that if we look at it aright, it overlooks none of the points in reference to which faith can be defined, albeit that the words are not arranged in the order of a definition, end quote. So I don't want to go into the complete analysis that St. Thomas gives of faith, but I, I do want to point out that he takes the word substance seriously. He notes that the object of faith is first truth as unseen. But the theological virtues have the same thing as object and end. So the first truth is the end of the uh, act of faith. But since it's unseen, it's something to be hoped for. So if you look at um, number eight there, it says, we hope for that which we see not, because to see the truth is to possess it. No one hopes, or excuse me, now one hopes not for what one already knows, but for, one, for what one has not. Accordingly, the relation of the act of faith to its end, which is the object of the will, is indicated by the words, faith is the substance of things to be hoped for. If we are wont to call by the name substance the first beginning of a thing, especially when the whole subsequent thing is virtually contained in the first beginning. However, the first beginning of the things to be hoped for is brought about by the ascent of faith, which contains virtually all the things to be hoped for. So another example of this might be, um, if you've got an acorn, you can say this is the substance of an oak because it has virtually within it everything it needs to become an oak. It has the beginning of oak in it. Um, so he's saying the same thing is true with respect to eternal life. Once you have that theological virtue of faith, you have the beginning of eternal life in you, uh, and it's the principle by which it will become you will have it perfectly. In the second part of the definition, St. Thomas takes the word evidence in the definition to signify the result of evidence. Because the result of evidence is a firm adherence by the intellect to the truth. By faith, we have a firm adherence to a non-apparent truth. So St. Thomas says that the word conviction would also be appropriate. So instead of saying, the evidence of things unseen, you could say the conviction of things unseen. St. Thomas concludes by reformulating the definition. Faith is a habit of the mind whereby eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect assent to what is not apparent. This definition, according to St. Thomas, distinguishes faith from all other things pertaining to the intellect. Because we can describe it as evidence, it is distinguished from opinion, suspicion, and doubt, none of which make the intellect adhere to anything. And it's distinguished from understanding and science because it's of things that appear not. And it's distinguished from natural faith because natural faith has no reference to beatitude. So that's kind of a sign that it's a good way of formulating the definition of theological faith. So the other comparisons that can be made, from what we've just said, we've been calling supernatural faith a virtue all along, while we noted that the natural faith is not a virtue. Why is this? In our discussion above, the theological virtue is something that perfects us, and it's a principle for attaining eternal happiness. 
These principles, faith, hope, and charity, are a participation in the divine life. Therefore, they exceed any natural perfection man can attain. On the other hand, holding that something be true by natural faith is not a virtue of the intellect, because it's more in accord with the intellect to hold with certitude things that it sees itself. The object perfects the intellect in that case. If there's a virtue involved with, the natu with natural faith, it has more to do with the will. One who learns readily from another can be called docile or obedient, but we not say that they understand or know in a strict sense. So the intellect is not in a state of perfection, therefore not in a state of virtue. The catechism refers to the obedience of faith. It actually uses that language, obedience of faith. Even when speaking about the theological virtue, to obey from the Latin ob audire, to learn or listen to, in faith is to submit freely to the word that's been heard. That's a quote from the catechism. And this is common to both types of faith. But even here, the catechism makes a distinction, and this is number 10. <clears throat> faith is, first of all, a personal adherence of man to God. At the same time, and inseparably, it's a free assent to the whole truth that God has revealed. As personal adherence to God and assent to his truth, Christian faith differs, differs from our faith in any human person. It's right and just to entrust oneself wholly to God and to believe absolutely what he says. It would be futile and false to place such faith in a creature. Do these last two statements need defense? We've shown above that God does not simply have the truth or know the truth, he is the truth. Therefore, he can neither deceive nor be deceived, but this can't be said about any man. This leads to another distinction between the two types of faith. The certitude of human faith is less than the certitude of knowledge and understanding. But the certitude of revealed things is greater than the certitude of things understood or known by natural reason. Because a more certain cause has a more certain effect. The foundation of real things is divine truth, which, God, which is God himself, as was shown above. Natural faith is based on our own judgment or that of others, both of which are infallible. So the catechism puts it strongly, number 11 there on your handout. It, faith, is more certain than all human knowledge because it's founded on the very word of God who cannot lie. To be sure, revealed truth can seem obscure to human reason and experience, but the certainty that the divine light gives is greater than that which the light of natural reason gives. And the catechism takes that from St. Thomas. And Cardinal Newman states, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. I'm not sure how to take that, whether one means the number one or the, the pronoun one. Uh, speaking of difficulties, Christians reading the same scripture sometimes have contradictory views about the meaning of the text. For example, at the Last Supper, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Some take this to mean that when Christ said those words, the bread became his body. Others say that the bread does not become his body. Logically, one of these propositions must be true. The other must be false. Can they both be held by faith? St. Thomas argues that 
because the formal aspect of the object of faith is first truth, nothing false can stand. He argues further that since the true is the good of the intellect, it follows that all virtues which perfect the intellect exclude the false altogether. So one that cannot have supernatural faith in what is false. It's not, however, contrary to human faith to believe what is false. Because as we've said, it's not a virtue or perfection of the intellect. This is a scary thought. How do we know that what we believe is true? We may hold what we believe with great conviction, but that's not the measure of its truth. If we believe something false about divine revelation, it must be human or natural faith and not the theological virtue of faith. Faith comes from hearing, but who has the authority to say what scripture means? Who has the authority to teach? As Catholics, we believe that our Lord left us a church that teaches with his authority. This authority given to Peter and his successors is needed to address the moral and doctrinal questions that will continue to rise until the end of time. When the church formally teaches on faith and morals, we have the certitude the teaching is true. So let me conclude this part of the talk by summarizing how faith illumines reason. Faith gives us a knowledge of God and of things insofar as they are related to him that surpasses the ability of our natural reason to know. It's an infused virtue of the intellect that is a participation in the Godhead and the beginning of eternal life. The certainty we have by this faith is greater than any other certitude that the intellect can have in this life. The object of faith is first truth, who is the cause of all of the truths. So let me say a few words now about the relation between faith and reason. I'm talking about the relationship in the catechism. I think catechism puts it well. If you look at quote number 12, the section called Faith Seeks Understanding. And I just want to point out that this is an hour college motto. Um, it's taken from St. Anselm's Proslogion. So it's intrinsic to faith that a believer desire to know better the one in whom he has put his faith and to understand better what he, what he has revealed. A more penetrating knowledge will in turn call forth a greater faith, increasing, increasingly setting a, set a fire by love. The grace of faith opens the eyes of our, your heart to a lively understanding of the contents of revelation, that is, of the totality of God's plan and the mysteries of faith, of their connection with each other and with Christ, the center of revealed mystery. The same Holy Spirit constantly perfects the faith by his gifts so that revelation may, may be more and more profoundly understood. In the words of St. Augustine, I believe in order to understand, and I understand in order to believe. Noteworthy in this citation is the fact that faith-seeking understanding can lead to an increase of both faith and understanding. In his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul has chapters devoted each part, each part of Augustine's profound statement. In chapter two, which is entitled, I Believe in Order to Understand, he begins by looking at the wisdom books in scripture, pointing out that what's distinctive in them is the conviction that there's a profound and indissoluble union, and I'm quoting now, between the knowledge of reason and the knowledge of faith, end quote. 
He says that faith and reason cannot be separated without diminishing the capacity of men to know themselves, the world, and, and God in an appropriate way. In this chapter, the, point, the Pope describes the book of nature as the first stage of divine revelation. If read properly, he says, it can lead to the knowledge of the existence of God and the knowledge that our happiness consists in knowing and loving him. If we fail to do so, it's not because of the lack of means, but rather because of our sinfulness, we have put impediments in the way. And even when we arrive at truth about God by the use of natural reason, knowledge of the faith gives us a larger context in which to understand them. So, quote number 13 here. <clears throat> faith liberates reason insofar as it allows reason to attain correctly what it seeks to know and to place it within the ultimate order of things in which everything acquires meaning. In brief, human beings attain truth by way of reason because enlightened by faith, they discover the deeper meaning of all things and most especially about their own existence. So enlightened by faith, especially through the science of sacred theology, reason can judge the truths of conclusions reached by the natural reason. It does this without destroying the nature of natural sciences themselves. The natural sciences retain the principles and methods proper to each. They don't become branches of theology or receive principles from divine revelation. On the other hand, the Pope argues that truth conferred by revelation is understood in light of reason. And I'm quoting there, truth conferred by revelation is to be understood in light of reason. He says St. Thomas in particular of him that he recognized that the study of nature could, quote, contribute to the understanding of divine revelation. Just as grace builds on nature and brings it to fulfillment, so faith builds upon and perfects reason. The Pope says further, without philosophy's contribution, it would in fact be impossible to discuss theological issues, such as, for example, the use of language to speak about God, the personal relations within the Trinity, God's creative activity in the world, the relationship between God and man, or Christ's identity as true God and true man. So he's, the Pope is saying we can't understand those things well without a study of nature. This is also true in the realm of moral theology, which depends on a knowledge of man's nature and his end. In this way, the lower sciences serve as handmaids to theology, just as grace builds on nature and perfects it. So sacred theology builds upon the natural sciences and at the same time perfects them. In his apostolic constitution, ex corde ecclesiae, Pope John put it this way, while each discipline is taught systematically and according to its own methods, interdisciplinary studies assisted by a careful and thorough study of philosophy and theology enable students to acquire an organic vision of reality and to develop a continuing desire for intellectual progress. So let me read that again. Each discipline is taught systematically and according to its own method Interdisciplinary studies assisted by careful and thorough study of philosophy and theology enable us to acquire an organic vision of reality. So that's kind of an argument for having an integrated program where you're not only studying the natural sciences themselves, but you're studying philosophy and theology and you're able to put those things together. 
This time does not permit me to go into detail about what happens when faith and reason are separated. We are living in times that suffer from that division. In Fides et Ratio, the Pope points out that the immediate result of the separation of faith and reason is skepticism, which is often turns or in turn leads to atheism and finally to nihilism, where one despairs of the possibility of knowing anything at all. And he says, I quote, all their intellectual, intellectual endeavors then become directed to utilitarian ends, the enjoyment of pleasure and power, end quote. So we can now take another look at the statement from the Blue Book that I quoted at the beginning. <clears throat> the aim of Catholic liberal education is a perfection of the intellect which is proper and possible to the Catholic alone. Given what we've said about the theological virtue of faith and how faith illumines and guides reason, we can see that such a Catholic liberal education leads to a perfection of the intellect which exceeds the natural power of reason and is a participation in the divine. But this is further qualified by a phrase, proper and possible to Catholic alone. <clears throat> what do the college's founders have in mind by this addendum? We've already alluded to the fact that faith must be taught. But in order to have certitude of faith, we need to know that what we're taught is in fact what God has revealed. We are assured of this by the authority, of Christ, the authority Christ gave to his apostles and their successors to teach on matters of faith and morals. Hence, the Blue Book states, and this is the last quotation, the first and most pressing duty, therefore, if there is to be Catholic education, calls for reestablishing in our minds the central role the teaching church should play in the intellectual life of the Catholic teacher, teachers and, and students. Since the, faith, since the faith liberates the believer from error in his submission to its teachings, it both guides and strengthens his intelligence in the performance of those activities which constitute his very life as a thinker. Thank you.